Thank everybody for joining us. We are continuing our study in the book of Philippians. This morning we come to undoubtedly one of my favorite verses in the book of Philippians. Uh, we're going to look at Philippians 1, verse 29 and 30. Uh, this verse is uh, very significant for me because uh, at a time when I was a newly convert, uh, trying to have peace in the fact that God had saved me and started to be distressed on whether God really had indeed saved me or whether there was doubt about that. A brother in the Lord uh, pointed me to several scriptures, and one of those scriptures was this scripture, which shows that when it comes to our belief, when it comes to our salvation, it is only through the work and miraculous work of God that he's able to make us believe and to have faith in him. So let us turn to Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 29, and we'll take verses 29 and 30. If you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> Philippians 1, starting in verse 29. The inerrant, unfailing word of God reads, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, because your word is true. I ask, Lord, that you would open up our minds this morning to understand and consider how not only you grant us belief, but you also grant us suffering, Lord. May we understand the meaning of that suffering that should be taking place in you, being in you, attached to you. And to that, we also tell you, Lord, we believe, yet help our unbelief. As we suffer, please give us strength and endurance. And I ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. So a question that we could ask ourselves today is... Why is it that a person believes the gospel? Why is it that somebody is converted into the life of being a follower of Christ? And once somebody is a Christian, shouldn't it be that life should work out? That my job should get better? That my family should be in peace? That my spouse or my relationship should be in order? I mean, shouldn't that be the case? Right? Many times when we hear evangelists, God has a marvelous plan for your life. Come to Jesus and he'll give you what you need. and Life will be dandy from here. As I've said before, that's false advertising. Jesus guarantees that we'll have him. That we'll have eternal life. That we will have peace. Not that we're going to have happiness, necessarily speaking. That in the midst of our consequence of our own disobedience or being a victim of the doings of others, we will have peace, we will persevere. But how does that come about? How does that perseverance come along? Why does that perseverance come along genuinely and is lasting? How does that come to pass? 
In this section of Philippians, going back to about verse 19 through 30, so about the last 11, 12 verses that we have focused on in the last couple of weeks, we have learned three basic premises. Two of those were already covered. One we're going to cover today. First, in verse 19, we learn that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul is saying, I will glorify God whether I live or whether I am put to death. God is going to be glorified no matter what. And if I die, it's going to be gain for me. They're not going to take anything from me. I'm going to gain if I die. That's the first major idea. Second major idea, as we heard last week, was that we need to remember to behave as citizens of heaven. To make our calling be worthy of the gospel. That means standing firm in the gospel that we've embraced and believed. And we ought to never be afraid of the opposition, as fierce as that may be. Standing firm and living as citizens of heaven. We're just passing through this earth. Now, in this passage we come, this third subsection, it talks about God granting belief, granting faith in order to be a Christian. God is the one who grants that. So in that we are joyful. Yes. But that does not come alone. There is something attached to that belief. There is something attached to that genuine faith that is suffering. Okay. Faith is accompanied by suffering. And that's the section we're going to uh, be focusing on today. And therefore, I've titled this sermon, Believing and Suffering in Christ. A subtitle would be Perseverance in the Christian Life. So let us ask ourselves this morning, are you suffering? Am I suffering? Do I know someone who's suffering? If you are in Christ, your suffering is not alone. Your suffering is not in vain. Christ is with you through that suffering. Jesus is walking through it with you. Now, if you are suffering and you are not in Christ, cry out to God that he would grant you belief. So that the suffering you're enduring would be for him and in him so that he may give you strength. And hence, your suffering will have meaning and not be a wasted suffering. In order so that we can be in Christ as we suffer. I'm reminded of a child who has an injury and he's going to go through a, a pretty tough medical procedure. And even though it's going to hurt, the child rather have his mother hold him while this procedure is being done than for the doctor or for a chair restraining him, hold him back. That happened to my son when he was two years old. He cut his hand and they were going to have to do about 12 stitches. And as much as that was going to hurt... The moment mama had him in her arms, holding him so that he could be stitched. Oh, believe me, he cried bloody murder. But yet, he'd rather be held by his mother while that was being done. How much more then, when we suffer, even knowing that it's going to hurt, should we be wanting to be in the arms of our Heavenly Father while we suffer? 
Because then we'll be comforted. Then we know that we are not alone. That's a little bit of the background to this section. We know Paul is in a palace, comfortably in his office. Nope, he's in prison. He's in a high security prison. And he's writing to the Philippians so that they would be encouraged, so that they would be united in the gospel, so that the message of Christ would keep expanding more and more. That the Philippians would keep loving each other more and more. So that they could persevere through these trials and to live according to the calling of the gospel so that they remember their citizens of heaven. So that they know and have the assurance that if they're persecuted and they're suffering, they're going to do that for Christ. If they're ultimately killed, they're going to die and that's going to be gain and that's going to be for Christ as well. And Paul is now going to give sort of a punchline to end this small section here. Why is it that the Philippians will be able to do that? How? Why? Where is that fuel, that motivation, that conviction going to come from? So Paul is going to tell them, the reason you're going to persevere is because of this. Why will they be able to have the conviction and assurance that if they die in Christ, is going to be gained? Why are they going to have the conviction to live as citizens of heaven. Why are they going to stand firm in the gospel without fearing? Why will they not be fearful of those who are persecuting them? Why? Paul tells them, because God has granted you belief in Christ. That's why. So let's take a quick look at verse 29. Why will they be able to persevere? Paul says, because of the sake of Christ, you've been granted to believe. Let's read it. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So then we ask ourselves, have we believed? Have you believed? Have you been converted? If so, how did that happen? How did that come to be? Second, if you're not a Christian, how can the faith, trust, and belief in Christ come to pass? How can that happen? If you believe that Christ is the only Savior that has died on the cross to pay for your sins by being tortured, murdered, crucified, but not remaining there, but being resurrected, being raised in bodily form from the grave to give you eternal life. If you believe that and genuinely believe that it is only because God has granted you that belief, no other way. And similarly... If you do not believe and you're not a Christian, unless God grants you that faith, you will never be able to believe. Never. You can go through the motions, you can fake it in one sense, or the other extreme, you could be totally either militant or apathetic to it, but that will not change unless God intervenes and grants you that faith. That phrase, it has been granted to you in this verse, the Greek word, kurisomai, it means to give freely, to give out of benevolence with the understanding that you are receiving a gift that you otherwise did not deserve. It has been granted to you. You don't deserve it. You're not worthy. But yet, a benevolent master is giving you this. 
out of his goodness. It has been granted to you. That's the kind of language Paul is using here. So then the key here is that faith, belief in Christ, is a gift from God. It is granted to you. Some may say, well, uh, I accepted Christ. I found God. I prayed to receive Jesus in my heart, or I, re I responded to the gospel. So in a sense, I would say, yeah, that's, that's true in a sense. But my friends, in this self-loving, selfie generation, in this culture, this type of language and choice of words can be easily misconstrued by others, and even by us, without even realizing it. Therefore, if we look to Scripture, we must not stop there. We must go further and ask, okay, so I did believe, yeah, of course I believe. Yes, of course I was saved. Yeah, of course I found God in that sense. But why? Let's take some of those layers of that onion and find out why was that the case? Why did I respond to the gospel? And the biblical answer is that the only reason you responded, that I responded and believed, trusted in the perfect work of Christ, is because God, through His Holy Spirit, did a divine intervention to open up our mind, our heart, our understanding. And so that the gospel would not be foolishness to us. That's why we believe. So let us take a look at a few scriptures that reinforce this biblical teaching. God grants repentance. God grants repentance. 2 Timothy Chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, it says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. So God grants the miracle of repentance. And how is that achieved? By and large, by the witness of his people. It is our duty to be witnesses for Jesus, to be ambassadors of Christ. And it says, if God wills, he will grant them repentance. It is out of our hands. Once we've given a good witness, once we've shared the good news, it's not up to us. That's such a big load off our backs. We may worry, oh, I don't, I don't want to say a word about Jesus or about Christ or about my faith. What are they going to think? Or I'm going to be a failure. They're not going to respond. You don't worry about that. It's between them and God. God grants repentance. Next, God grants faith. It's all interrelated, right? God grants faith. It is a gift. So let us go to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. That's a scripture that we all should have memorized. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not, a, it's not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, lest anyone should boast. By grace, again, just like the language of Philippians 1.29, that it has been granted. Here, when it says by grace, again, it's unmerited, not deserved. Something given to you out of kindness. We don't deserve it. Instead of demanding, in the case of a master to his servant, to pay where they cannot pay, indeed can never pay, the debt is erased by grace. Instead of having the hammer of justice come and drop on you, 
someone steps in, doesn't take the hammer of justice away, but they themselves take that hit for you. Justice doesn't go away. That's the kind of language that is being used here. In order for justice to still be served and for us to go free. So God grants faith. God grants repentance. Now, repentance from what? Faith to be saved from what? Again, says, let's revisit this. Romans 5 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So we are granted faith. We are granted belief in Jesus so that we can escape the wrath, the righteous and holy wrath of Almighty God. That's why. A righteous judge, if we could imagine a righteous judge on this earth, does not have the obligation to be lenient or to give consideration to a criminal that has been proven guilty. If that judge gives the appropriate sentence to that criminal, we would be obligated to say, that is a righteous judge. That is a good judge. And perhaps the, way, the best way to put it is if we put ourselves in the place of the victim of that criminal. God forbid somebody enters your house, plunders your house, hurts your family. You go to the trial of this man that got caught, and the judge says, you know what, I'm feeling good today. I'm going to let this criminal go. What would our response be, by and large? That is not a good judge. Justice was not served. How much more with Almighty God? We are sinners by nature and choice, and God is not obligated to provide any pardon for us. He could let us die in our sin, perish forever, and he would remain 100% righteous and holy. That's what we're, uh, we're up against. We can never come to God as debtors, as, I mean, as, as creditors, like God owes me something. I'm expecting something from him. No, never. We can only come to him as debtors. So now that we kind of get a picture of that, let us look at the hope that we do have. Just a couple of verses prior to that. Romans 5, 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. My friends, Christ died for the ungodly. He didn't die for the people that needed a little bit of help. And when we read this, my brothers and sisters, just remember, I am ungodly. I need pardon. Don't take this lightly. Christ died for us, for the ungodly. While we were yet lost, Christ died for me. Paying the price and receiving God's wrath on the cross so that I would not have to. 
So God grants belief, grants repentance, grants faith, so that we are saved from his righteous judgment. Let's take a quick reminder of Paul's conversion to see how this works practically speaking. And many of us could apply this to our own testimony. Paul was a zealous religious Jew. Pharisee of, Paris, a Pharisee of Pharisees, scoring high marks above any one of those religious Jews. When Paul got hit with a Christian conversion, was he looking for God? I mean, he was looking for Christians. Why was he looking for Christians? To join them? To murder them? To persecute them? So Paul, in that state of mind, self-righteous, thinking he was serving God, but actually being an enemy of God, 100%, killing the followers of God, in that state, while he was still sinning, Christ saved him, knocked him off his horse, literally blinded him and saved him. So therefore, how can we say, oh, I, I accepted Christ. I came forth. I said a prayer. I was smarter than the average person that heard the same thing I heard, and they didn't believe, but I was smart enough to believe. No, my friends. The only reason we can understand and see the gospel and see the beauty of Christ being sinners, being ungodly, is because God, through his Holy Spirit, convicts us and changes us. Something we call regeneration. He be he gives us the eyes we need, the heart we need, the mind we need in order to see Jesus for who he truly is and to see us for who we truly are. How can we then rejoice knowing that if there was hope for Paul, there is hope for me, for you. If we are a Christian, if you are a believer, there's nothing to boast of. God save you. He gets all the glory. And if you are not a Christian, please know that you are an enemy of God under God's wrath. Right at this second. You are not neutral. And I urge you to cry out to him that he would grant you repentance. That he would grant you belief. There's nothing you can offer God. Not a good deed. Not a donation to any corporation or charitable organization. Nothing. The only thing you can contribute to God is say... Here's my sin. Save me. So God is the one who grants belief, faith in order to be saved. And Paul is reminding the Philippians of that. Secondly, how are they going to persevere through difficult times? We're going to see here that because a Christian suffering is for the sake of lifting up Christ and making him known, God will give us perseverance. The second part of that verse, 29, it says that we're not only going to be granted belief, but also to suffer for his sake. Suffering because of his sake, it's twofold. We suffer because of Christ, because of who we identify with, is Jesus 
And then we suffer in order to glorify him so that he gets glory, so that he gets honor in our suffering. So let us take a quick look first at suffering because of Christ. The immediate context here of Paul talking about suffering for the sake of Christ. Remember Paul, his beatings, his humiliations, his near-death experiences, but specifically his incarceration now roots back to one reason and one reason only. Because he, without regard to opposition, preached Jesus, he loved Jesus, and he told others that they were going to perish if they don't follow Jesus. This is the immediate reason why Paul is suffering. He's encountering all that persecution. And hence, the phraseology, suffering for the sake of Christ. There's opposition, there's persecution, there's suffering inflicted on Christians because the world hates Jesus. Make no mistake, the world hates Jesus. Let us go to John 15, verses 18 and 19. John 15, 18 and 19 says, Jesus is speaking here, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. There it is. The world hates Jesus. Let me paraphrase that. The world hates the true Jesus. Okay? Because any secular organization or any church that preaches a watered-down gospel, they will be okay with talking about Jesus in general. If you identify as a Christian and, and you volunteer and you do benevolent work and you are a nice person, for the most part, the world will love you. But the moment you express the exclusivity of Jesus, that he is the only true way to God, that he is God in flesh, and that if you don't believe and repent, you will perish, oh, how the tables will turn very quickly. Because now you are proclaiming and identifying with the true Jesus, then the world will hate you because they hate Jesus. That's why. And because of that, suffering ensues. Let us illustrate this with another verse. John 10, 31 through 33. It's a little passage here. That will illustrate how people will be okay with the generic Jesus, but all hell will break loose, literally, and spiritually speaking, when the true Jesus is proclaimed. It says, I have shown you many good works. This is Jesus talking from the father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him. It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. Jesus was not crucified for what he did, but for what he said. And what he said was true. He told the religious Jews, if you don't believe that I am, the language used of God in the Old Testament, if you don't believe that I am Jehovah, 
you will die in your sins. Before Abraham was, I am. That's a similar passage to the one we just read. And the Jewish people, oh, they knew what Jesus was talking about. And that's why they said, you making yourself, you being a mere man, make yourself to be God. And the penalty for declaring yourself to be God for blasphemy was to stone you to death. Many people say, Jesus never claimed to be God. I tell them, you never read the Bible. The Jewish religious people knew exactly what Jesus meant. And therefore, they were going to stone him to death. That would have been the perfect place for Jesus to say, whoa, 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 you misunderstood me. Please, understand that I'm not saying I'm God. Jesus was like, well, I've said what I said. And he proved it by being murdered on a cross and rising from the dead. Validates all of his claims. So that's point number one. That was suffering because of Jesus. Because we identify as Christians. Now, the other half of that is suffering for the glory of Jesus. The glory of Jesus. The Bible uses this word of God, of Jesus, going back to the Old Testament. The Hebrew word kavod, and then translated in the Greek to doxa. It's talking of a heaviness, the notion of importance, of worthiness, of honor, of reverence. It talks about the splendor of God, the greatness of God, the goodness of God, the supremacy of God, the holiness of God, the glory of God. And when the glory of God is displayed, what should the proper reaction of man be? We have an example in the Old Testament. When King Solomon was saying a prayer for the newly built temple. It's a beautiful prayer. I encourage you to read it. It's in 2 Chronicles. But right when he was done with that prayer, it gives us insight as to the proper response of the glory of God being displayed. Second Chronicles 7, the first three verses. It reads, As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple, and the priests could not enter the house of the Lord, because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down, in the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For He is good, for His steadfastness love endures forever. The glory of God properly displayed makes men fall on their faces and say, I am nothing. I am not worthy. I better get on my knees, on my face, and worship God now. Either do it now, or you do it when you face judgment. Every knee, every knee will bow. So the suffering of a Christian will make known the glory of Christ. And our suffering in Christ is never in vain. Suffering, desperation brings forth 
the truth of how weak we really are. Vulnerability, when we are in need, physically, spiritually, emotionally. Where do we get our strength? Where does that perseverance come from? The Christian makes it through those major trials because of the grace of God, because of the strength of God, because of the providence of God, because of the provision of God, because God is with us. Let us take a look at one of those examples. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 and 9. This is Paul speaking. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Who gets the glory? When you can't go on anymore. Who gets the glory when you see a loved one who is perhaps going to die? And yet, God makes you persevere. Who gets the glory when there seems to be no more hope? And turning to God, all of a sudden we have peace. Regardless of whether that situation is changed or not, God has granted you peace. And the world looks at you and they say, that doesn't make any sense. What's going on? That's right. That's foolishness to the world. Because they don't understand that God will give us a peace that surpasses all understanding. Regardless of the outcome of the trial. So Paul is saying... Suffer in Christ because you identify with him. The world's going to hate you. That suffering is going to bring glory to God Almighty. It's going to bring glory to Jesus. And then thirdly, Paul in verse 30 sets himself as the example of while suffering, God is still granting him perseverance. Verse 30 says, Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now, see, I still have. Going back to the conversion of Paul, Saul of Tarsus, when a vision of the Lord in Acts 9 came to a faithful man in Damascus, Ananias, and Jesus told him in a dream to go meet Paul. He was going to lay hands on him, and he was going to recover his sight because Jesus struck, struck um, Saul of Tarsus blind. When he knocked him off the horse. This is what it says when Jesus told him that he was going to go and, and meet, meet Saul of Tarsus. Acts 9 verse 13 and then verses 15 and 16 it says. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. How much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. 
So if anything can be said about the constant reality of the life of the Apostle Paul, literally from the moment of conversion, was suffering, suffering, suffering. Paul is telling the Philippians that in suffering, they are not alone. He knows exactly what suffering because of Christ and for the glory of Christ looks like. And he's telling them, I was engaged in that kind of conflict. I still am. I'm still here. And I just told you that if I live, I'm going to live for Christ. Christ is going to be glorified. And I could tell you if I die, if I get killed, that's going to be gained for me. See, that's a conviction that Paul has. And therefore, he is proving to the Philippians that he's just not all talk. He's saying, this that I'm writing to you, I am living through it. And therefore, that should bring them encouragement to persevere in the faith, to keep expanding the gospel. Because they have been granted belief. And if that belief is indeed true belief, they're going to be hit with suffering. But yet, Christ will be with them and they will persevere. So then, how can we summarize what we learned in those two verses? Very rich in understanding of why it is that a Christian believes and how it is that a Christian can maintain in the faith. Well... I guess three points of summary. First, you should ask yourself, have I believed? And I would ask, are you suffering? At some point, suffering becomes part of the believer's life because of Christ and in order to give him glory. That suffering is the confirmation that true belief has been granted to you. Have you believed? Now, if nothing has changed about your life, and if the world loves you, my friend, don't be deceived. You have not believed. So let us turn to Christ. Have I believed? Secondly, let's switch that around. Are you suffering? And I will ask you, have you believed? Suffering may draw us closer to Christ. Indeed, it does draw us closer to Christ. He can take our burden. So let us not be our suffering being vain. If we are suffering, let us draw near to God. Let us draw close to the throne of grace in the name of our Lord and Jesus, in the name of Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that we may be able to endure. Are you suffering? Have you believed? Believe. And thirdly, that true belief will come with suffering. A converted person will not remain stagnant or regress in his spiritual life. But rather, through times of suffering, our faith will increase. And the glory of Christ is going to be magnified. True belief will show fruit of continual repentance, continual belief, which is perseverance. We talk about the perseverance of the saints in the reformed understanding of belief in the gospel. Yes, we will fall. Will you get up? 
Yes, there will be a crisis of faith. Will God grant you belief? Cry out to him. I believe. Help my unbelief. Yes, we will sin. Will God grant us repentance? Let us cry out, Lord, grant me repentance. I grieve because of my sin. And if we are children of God, we will not remain in sin. And we will not have a fruitless life. But we will see an improvement and a growing closer to Jesus through his church and individually as saints. May God grant us that belief in Jesus daily. And may he grant us that our suffering would be in him and for him. As a closing thought, God commands us to trust him. And he's the one who's going to provide the belief to trust him. And let us remember that Jesus perfectly trusted, perfectly believed the Father. Thing that we lack. Jesus has done it. And secondly, let us remember that that suffering that we have, either because, again, of our personal sin or because of somebody else that hurt us, Jesus has suffered already perfectly, righteously, without sinning. So that the belief that we need to have in God the Father and His promises has already been fulfilled in Christ. And that suffering that needed to be done in order for us to have forgiveness of sin has already been done also by Jesus. That belief and that suffering then, we can turn to Jesus and see how it was perfectly done in our Savior. So God doesn't ask us to do something that Jesus hasn't done. And that's what we can rely on Him. Let us look at the last two scriptures, 2 Corinthians 5.21a and 2 Corinthians 8.9b. It says, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin. Yet for your sake He, Jesus, became poor so that you by His poverty might become rich. See, we ought to suffer for his sake, because of him, but he already did it for us. For your sake, for your sake, he already suffered. A small extract of the Nicene Creed says, For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered, died, and was buried. Again, the concept of for our sake. We are asked to suffer for Jesus. He's already done it for us. So then what can we say? Nothing else but, oh, what a great God we serve. He is not absent. He is not apathetic to our suffering because he has granted us belief. And in that belief, the suffering that accompanies that belief, he has also given us the tools to persevere. Because him who perseveres till the end shall be saved. Let that be us today, my brothers and sisters. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, this day may we follow your mercy. May we be like the blind man, like the blind man Bartimaeus who saw, who, who couldn't see, but heard of you coming through the street. And the only thing he could do is Cry out, Son of David, have mercy on me. 
May that be us today, Lord. Knowing that you turn nobody away that comes to you with a humble heart. That you will grant belief. That you will grant repentance. That you will grant salvation. That you will grant restoration. It is in that promise that we rest today, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.